welcome here. My name's Matt. Great to have you here with us. Um, Thanks for coming back. We had a great Easter weekend last week. I want to thank everyone who made that go so well and be such a great morning. I hope you also felt that it was a great morning. Um, that serve teams in particular, I'm just really thankful for everyone who came early, stayed late, and uh, went the extra mile for that. Just a real joyful time. Uh, we are now uh, sort of done our Easter series, obviously. Uh, we're going to be back in a series that we have been in uh, for the past, I guess, year or so in the book of Luke. Uh, we are going to be in Luke chapter 6 today, verses 46 to 49, and uh, this is kind of our ongoing journey through Luke that will hit uh, now and again for the next probably couple of years. And so I'd like to pray for us, and uh, then we'll... <laughs> it takes a while. It's a long book. Not all at once, just in sections. Um, okay, uh, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll dig into the text. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for this time and this place. Thank you, God, for all the, the blessings that are among us. Thank you for new life and for children born healthy, Lord. We, we pray for those that are still pregnant. We know there are many uh, that are expecting children, God, and we're thankful for that. Uh, pray again for healthy deliveries. Uh, Lord, I also pray for a continued growth of, of our church, God, that as, as people come, as, as visitors attend, perhaps visitors here now, Lord, I pray that uh, there would be a work in their lives, God, that you would be connecting with them, and God, you'd help us as a church to, to love them well and love each other well. I pray now as we look to your word, God, that we would be instructed and shaped, and Lord, that in this case, uh, Lord, this text, that uh, our understanding of faith and what it means to, to live by faith, God, that uh, this would become clear for us. So I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, uh, we are in a fairly well-known text, uh, Jesus teaching on the nature of faith, giving two pictures of faith. Uh, the wise and foolish builder, it's sometimes called. Uh, in both instances, uh, Jesus is going to give us a picture of what it means to live our life, supposedly rooted on Jesus, and yet there's a big difference between those who just profess faith and those who actually live by it. The issue here is one of foundation. And so we're going to talk this morning about foundations, foundations of faith, foundations of architecture. I really love architecture. I'm not sure if, if you do or care that much about it, but it's, it's fascinating to me to see you know, structures built of all different shapes and sizes. Uh, what's apparent to all of us is that any decent structure has a decent foundation. Uh, we see this everywhere. I'm not sure if you lived in this area when they were building uh, the Ikea uh, over by the highway, but if you were, you remember for months and months, there was a sound that would ring out again and again, over and over again. It was this clink, clink, clink of these, these pile drivers. For, for months, before they even could put the building up, they had to drive these 20, 30-foot-long pilings down into the ground because that whole area is soft. I don't know, it's floodplain or something. Uh, and before they could build it, they had to get down to the bedrock. In fact, even now, if you go into the movie theater, you'll notice the land is just sinking around the buildings. They have to keep, you know, putting new asphalt to, to join the steps fall apart because it's soft there. The buildings are solid because the buildings are on a foundation, but the parkade, everything else is going to collapse eventually. So, <laughs> so the point is, uh, see Avengers before it's too late. No, the point is, uh, point is that's the essence of a firm foundation. Security, stability, it all comes from, from a rock-solid foundation. And the same is true for our faith. But how do you know if your faith is, in fact, well-founded? So that's what we're going to talk about. That's what Jesus uh, explains in this text. So I'm going to read uh, verses 46 to 49, not a long text. A quick refresher. This is uh, actually right at the end of a sermon that Jesus is preaching. 
It's often called the Sermon on the Plain. He's got a, a number of people, a multitude of people in front of him, and he's been teaching them sort of principles of the kingdom of God, uh, love your enemies, judge yourself before you judge others. And here at the end, he comes to a point of real confrontation, sort of exhorting them, and, and here's what he says. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. That's God's word to us this morning. Two clear pictures of two people building a house. I want to begin, though, by looking at that very first verse, verse 46, where Jesus says this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Those are interesting words for for a few different reasons, but uh, first and foremost, I think it's really clear Jesus is not too concerned about maintaining his numbers, if you know what I mean. He's got a lot of people in front of him, a lot of people calling him Lord, and there are many, even many rabbis at the time, that would have been like, that, that's the end goal. I've got people following me. My ministry is growing. I'm becoming more popular. That's, that's great. That's all I need. But for Jesus, that's, that's not the point, clearly. And even after he's taught them some very tough things, love your enemies, right? Pray for those who persecute you. You might think he would end with like a word of encouragement. Man, I know this is tough. Look, I just want you guys to know, man, I'm your guy. You're my people. Let's just keep this going. Okay, just do your best. It's hard. He doesn't say that. He doubles down. Sort of as a last thing. By the way, why are some of you calling me Lord? You're not even doing what I'm telling you. It's, you would not think that's a real encouraging way to end. But we see that Jesus is meaning to encourage them. But in a real, a real way. A legitimate way. Not with fluffy language. But in the sense that he really wants them to have a, a solid faith. And he knows that it's not good for them. It's not even good for, for him. For the glory of God. If there are many people calling themselves followers of Christ, but aren't actually living that way. So he ends with a word of strong exhortation. What he's telling them is they need to demonstrate obedience to his word because that is what reveals a genuine changed heart. That is how a faith is actually lived out and demonstrated. And so in confronting them, he gives them two pictures. There's first the house built on the rock and then the house built on the land or the ground or sometimes a sandy land as the, as the song goes. Um, so we have solid faith and unstable faith. And those two pictures are going to kind of guide our time together. We're going to look at the first first and the second mm, second. Okay. So firstly, a house built on the rock. That is solid faith. Now here the picture is very clear. The guy building his house for his family, he does it properly. He digs down deep to bedrock. It's always essential. And the structural security of that structure relies upon its foundation. And so the question is, well, what is, what is the foundation of our faith? And we have an inkling of it here in the text. Verse 48, uh, Jesus says, He, that is the, the true disciple, he is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And you probably noticed this before, that he doesn't say a rock, like any given hard surface. He says the rock. There's a sense in which there's one foundation that was the right and appropriate and strong foundation, and that is, of course, Jesus. Now, at the time, this would have been uh, revolutionary because Jesus himself, he, he makes very clear, this is what I'm saying. 
He says, for you to lay your your faith on this foundation, you have to obey my words. That's not how the rabbis of the time would have spoken. Typically a good rabbi, like if you had a good one, he would be good at pointing you to God's words. Saying, look, here's what God says in the text. Here's what the Pentateuch says. Here's here's what the law says. This is where our faith is founded. I'm a good rabbi because I'm pointing you to God. I'm helping you to understand what God is saying and then you you can live it out. But Jesus says, it's, no, you need to obey me. And that would have certainly puzzled the people. And yet it was essential for them. It was essential for them to understand that it's the words of Christ himself. Because he is the rock. We see this language uh, throughout the, the New Testament. And, and the connection between Jesus as a foundation or cornerstone, uh, what's explained about him makes it clear why he, he has to be the foundation. Look at Acts 4, 11 to 12. It says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So there he's speaking to the religious leaders. This is Paul saying, look, there, there was a stone, but you rejected him. You're supposed to be the builders of the faith, but you, you're building with the wrong materials. So why is Jesus the right cornerstone? Well, it says right there, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Paul's saying, look, there can only be one essential foundation uh, material, and that's Jesus, because he is the one who deals with the essential problem of humanity, which is sin, which is what we celebrated last week. That's why we, that's why we got so many flowers. There's still some left over. But that, that's the biggest deal for us as Christians. If you're here and you're a believer, you know this, this is what we talk about all the time for a reason. Because without the answer to that question of sin, anything else we build is going to collapse, as we'll see. So Jesus, right from the get-go, kind of implicit within this text, even though these people aren't clear as to exactly how he would answer sin, Jesus is saying, it's my words you need to listen to. I am the essence of life and hope for you. But what does it look like then to actually live out that faith? I mean, there are people there who are saying, Jesus is my guy. I, I believe in him. I'm not sure everything about him, but that's where my hope is. But Jesus is speaking to those people and saying, it's not enough just to say that. There needs to be an integrity of your life. There needs to be action in your life. And so he gives them three actions, three things that they would do to actually build upon this foundation of a professed faith. So here's verses 47 and 48. He says, everyone who comes to me Here's my words and does them. I will show you what he is like. He's like a man who builds a house, who dug deep, laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. So you see the results there. So how do you get those results? That kind of a life that where we're not shaken. Well, the three things we're going to take each one in turn to understand how it is that we, we build this kind of faith. And it's important to note here, he's, he's speaking to believers, Yeah. He's not speaking to to those who have not expressed faith. Like if you're here this morning and you're a guest, you're very welcome here. And I think this will be helpful for you, even in terms of understanding the Christian faith. But the two groups of people both think that they have a solid faith. And yet only one does. And the distinction is in the life that's lived. So three things that Jesus points out practically speaking. First, he says, everyone who comes to me. This seems obvious. You can't believe in Jesus before you come to him. In fact, the people who were there in front of him had literally left whatever they were doing. It was the only way to know Jesus. You had to leave your plow, leave your milking, leave your goats. You had to come. 
There was no podcast. There was no anything else. You had to, you had to say, this is worthwhile. I'm doing something that's probably kind of important, but this is, Jesus is more worthwhile. I'm interested enough to come. So they came and, and they heard. But the implication of Jesus' words here is that it's not just a one-time coming. It's not like you come to faith and then, you know, some people will say, well, I, 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 came, I have faith, I believe. And I, you know, I sometimes attend a church. I do sometimes read my Bible, but look, I, I'm, I'm a Christian I, because I came to faith. Jesus seems to assume that there's a continual coming. That's part of the nature of our, of our growing in faith. And this shouldn't surprise us. I mean, any, any source of life improvement, anything that's supposed to make your life better, um, there's generally an attendance principle or, or a, like I was listening to this, uh, I know, I always listen to this podcast, that's all I do. So uh, it was a marketing a podcast because uh, I'm going to start a marketing company. No, I'm not going to do that. Um, they were talking about uh, the, the marketing strategy and, and business model of gyms, like fitness centers. They were talking about Planet Fitness down in the States, I think. And they were saying, have you ever noticed, and I noticed this, have you ever noticed when you drive by a gym, it seems like there's hardly anyone there. There's like thousands of square feet, and there's all these machines, and like a few people working out, and you always wonder, like, how do they make money? Well, what's the, how does this work? And so they used uh, Planet Fitness as an example. They said, when they build a, a new Planet Fitness, usually they have a capacity for about 300 people who could, like 300 machines or whatever, however it works. Um, but that's, that's not actually who they expect to be there. For a couple of reasons. Number one, if 300 people arrived to work out, it would be pretty tight. Like you wouldn't be able to get the things, the machines. But also, um, if they only had 300 members paying, they could not, they wouldn't make any money. That's not the business model. They don't expect 300 people to be members of Planet Fitness. They expect 1,500 people to be uh, members of Planet Fitness and only a small fraction of them to actually come to Planet Fitness and work out, which is perfect because... The people who do show up tend to be the people who are are kind of fit, right? They actually come and they actually work out. So when new people come to join the gym, they look and they say, well, this is beautiful, lots of room. And people seem kind of fit here. If I get a gym membership, I could be like them. And the answer is, you could. If you come to the gym. Yeah, that's the the key. If you just buy the membership, it's not going to work. But but that's not the business model. They, They don't expect everyone to show up. Because if they did, they'd have to build a bigger gym. They'd have to hire more staff. Their profit margins would shrink. So it's a business model built on the reality of human fickleness and our lack of self-discipline. It's great for gyms. That's not the model of the church. Just so you know, that's not what Jesus is thinking. He's not thinking, I want a lot of people to claim my name but not actually show up because then we'd have to build a bigger building or I know the church is not the building, but you know what I'm saying. That's, it's not that. He, he wants for people to have a genuine and lasting and strong faith. He doesn't want his people to be spiritually unfit, to be weak. For two reasons, it's not good for us, and it brings no glory to him. See, every time that we come to Jesus, and we do this in a variety of ways, we come to him through the word, we come to him in prayer, we come when we gather as a a people. Every time when we come, we are reminded of why we need him. And the more that we stay away, the more that we tend to forget. We tend to get the idea that, you know what, actually things are, are fine. I don't, I don't really need to, to consult the word of God. I don't really need to, to know what it is that God has for me because things are going okay. The, the depth of our sin and the magnitude of our need for God, it tends to become fuzzy the longer we stay away, which is why often people tend to get into a habit of, of not being part of a church or not reading the Bible, and they can't even quite remember when that happened. 
Well, it happened slowly. It began with, with not coming to Jesus, and that continued. And what we see for, for Jesus himself is saying, no, that if you want a faith that is strong and real, there will be a continual coming to me daily, weekly. But you can't just come. He says, he says, everyone who comes to me, but also everyone who hears my words. Now, we know that as human beings, uh, we are very practiced at hearing without hearing. Uh, our, our kids are fantastic at this, but even as adults, there are many situations where we, we tune out. Uh, one of the uh, sort of, I think the place where probably 99.9% of us tune out is when we get on an airplane and there is a life-saving bit of information <laughs> that everyone needs if the plane goes down and all of us tune out. There's a, I was reading this uh, flight attendant who said that sometimes what they would do is they would just change some words just to see if anyone noticed. So they'd say, you know, get the oxygen mask. When the oxygen mask falls, give it a tug. Uh, put it around your navel and breathe uh, regularly. Nothing. Not even an eyebrow raised. Um, you know, they would tell them in the event of a water landing, uh, the seat beneath you can be used as a music notation device. Not even a blink. Everyone, no one's listening. Why not? Well, in that case, probably because we think we know it. We've heard it before. We, we know what to do. We know the thing. Put it me first, then everyone else. We know, we know. We know. So we're not going to listen. And we tend to have that disposition when we come to Jesus. We come, but we've heard it before. Especially if we've grown up in the church or we've been part of a church. We, we, we open our Bible for our devotions and we kind of have the attitude of, man, I, kind of, I know the gospel. I know what is going to be said. And so there's a... There's a way in which we tend to tune out. But we need to remember that even though we've heard the gospel, even though maybe we've read through the Bible a couple of times, there is the same word from God, but applied differently in our lives depending where we are. And we need to be reminded of that word. In fact, the gospel itself does not change, but its application in our lives does very much so. When we come to Jesus and when we want to really hear him, we need to understand that there will be not just a word for salvation, but also for sanctification. And so we're going to grow. And so that means that in any given day when we come to Jesus, we come to him in his word, there may be a, a different type of word. Maybe we're convicted on a certain day because of a pattern of sin that we haven't noticed creeping up. Maybe we're encouraged. Maybe we've, got, we've been seeking wisdom or guidance and here we've been wondering, Lord, when are you going to speak to me? And it's there, but we aren't listening. See, to truly hear from Jesus, we need to be expectant and intentional. And I want to make this very practical because um, there is a sense in which, I mean, hearing from God is a, is a spiritual thing. The Spirit of God is within us. And there are times when the Spirit of God speaks to us and praise God for that, that he's with us. But there is also some very practical things that we can do to make ourselves ready to really hear from the Lord as we come to Jesus and his word. This is the main way that we're going to hear from God, the authoritative way, through the Bible. So how is it that when we come in our devotion time or here on a Sunday morning that we can really hear? I want to point out three things that I think will be helpful. Three quick things. Number one, uh, we need to prepare. We need to prepare. If we really believe that God is going to speak to us, it's going to be helpful, then we should prepare ourselves. And practically that means being rested, for many of us, being caffeinated, right? It's important for us to think clearly. And most importantly, we need to pray. Whenever we come before Jesus, whenever we open the Bible, it's so important that we just, we pause. We say, Jesus, I know you're speaking. Help me to hear, because that's the issue here. Help me to hear what you are saying 
open up my eyes, open up my heart. Before you sit down, we pray, Lord, I, I know you're going to speak, but I'm hard of hearing. We ask that God would move. So we need to be prepared. Secondly, we need to engage. So you can't listen to a sermon or read the Bible like you would listen or, or read other things. It's not like you're listening to the radio or like you're reading a magazine. There's, in that case, a sort of casual attentiveness. I kind of might want to hear what's going on. But when we're, when we're hearing from the Lord, we need to be all ears. And so we do that in a few different ways. I mean, some of us, we just pinch ourselves partway through the sermon, right, in about 10 minutes. I got to make it through. Fair enough. But there are other ways that we can really engage our minds. Uh, one of the things that uh, you might notice uh, in our gatherings is that the kids uh, tend to have clipboards. Uh, I think there, are there any kids with clipboards here? Is there one there? Good. All right, excellent. Um, could you do me a favor, kids? Could you just drop those clipboards on the floor for a second, please? Do you hear that? Do you hear that noise? There it is. Have you heard that noise before? Um, that is a wonderful noise. Because what it means is that our kids are, are in the practice of taking notes while they're listening to a sermon. That's an essential helpfulness if we are to hear from God, that our minds are clicked in. Now, I, I get it. Some are just drawing, you know, pictures of whatever. Me, that's fine. But the habit is there. And for us, for all of us as adults, this should be our disposition. Lord, I know you're saying something. What are you saying? I want to think deeply about it. Maybe I'm taking notes on my phone. Maybe I'm just making mental notes. But I'm clicked in. I'm trusting and believing that, God, you are really saying something. I want to hear it. The last important thing is sort of leveraged off of whatever notes or, or you know, mental stuff's going on is that we're, we're reflective, that we reflect on what has been said. Very often when we are thinking in light of what we've read in scripture or what we've heard in a sermon, we sometimes lean towards a sense of, I don't know, did I like it? Like, was it, was it entertaining? Was it interesting? Did, did it flow? Uh, the, maybe the Bible itself, do I, do I agree with it? I'd encourage you that that's not the essential question we should be asking. The essential question we should be asking is, what was God's word for me today? What is it that God was saying to me today? And that may be different for each one of us. It's amazing for me to hear how some people come and say, man, that, that first point, someone else the third point, or some, not point I made at all, just that part of scripture, or in their reading, say, man, God was spoke to me today. Praise God for that. He does speak. So the question that we should be wrestling with and thinking about is, Lord, what is your word to me today? What is it that you want me to hear from you? And trust that in that there will be help and hopefulness. So yes, we need to come. Yes, we need, we need to hear. We need to be active in, in hearing from God, but also we need to do. You see there that everyone who comes to hear the words of Jesus does them. And this is, of course, the linchpin for the whole thing probably partly because it's the hardest to fake. We can come half-heartedly. We can listen half-heartedly. It's harder to live half-heartedly without people noticing. We can, in our, in our, our sin is apparent and it reveals what's going on in our heart and that's a good thing. It, it, it reveals what God already knows and what we're pretending isn't true. So you just think for a moment about all those times that you've not done what God has called you to do. Why didn't you do it? Have you ever thought about that? Why didn't, I, why didn't I do that? Why am I struggling to obey? Typically, the, the answer is one of trust. The answer when we disobey God, what we're saying is, Jesus, I don't really trust you enough in this situation. Like, I trust you in general, 
That's what the people there were saying. We're following you. But in this specific situation, I got to go with my gut. Or I got to go with someone else's wisdom. I got to go with something else. I don't really believe that your way is best because your way in this instance is hard. Or your way is, is awkward or difficult or is going to cost me something. And so while in general I trust you here in this specific instance, I don't, I don't really trust you. James 1.22 says this, Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. See, there's an essential deception when it comes to disobedience. Because what we're saying is that we, we believe the lie that someone else knows best for us. That in this instance, even though God is telling us this clearly, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe this other voice over here. And we are willingly deceiving ourselves to think that that is going to lead to a strong and solid life and a strong and solid faith. See, faith comes not just through coming or hearing, but, but also through doing. Because it's in the doing that we grow. It's in the doing that we're, that we're tested. It's in the doing that we actually put our faith into practice and say, Lord, I'm willing to, to give something up. I'm willing to have a hard conversation. I'm willing to, to turn away from that sin. Because I trust you. I trust that it will be best. And that's where the strength comes. J- just like the gym. You can have a gym membership. You can come to the gym. But if you just drink vitamin water, you're, nothing's going to happen. If you just kind of wander around talking to people, nothing's going to happen. You need to get on the thing. I don't know the names for them. You need to get on the things and work out. You need to, you need to spend effort and energy. Expend that. Then, then you, will, you will grow. You'll be ready for whatever thing is coming your way. If you aren't in the doing, then you're not ready for anything. See, that's part of what Jesus is saying. You are not prepared for the trials of life and and for the trial that will come at the end of life. And that's the second picture we get. We see here a house built on the land, which is unstable faith. Verse 49, but the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. So what does that mean exactly? That the house fell. That the ruin was great. Well, what it means is that that, that person fell into, into a sense of despair. That all was lost. I mean, it's a metaphor. There wasn't a real house. This is someone's life. This is someone's faith. There were some pressures that came upon this person. And in falling, what does that mean? It means that they were, came to a point of hopelessness. Where they felt they couldn't go on. Where instead of persevering in the faith, they abandoned the faith and And they were crushed under the weight of the circumstances of life. I read an article this week uh, about a very extreme version of this. Uh, I read the article because of the title. Here's the title. The title was this, The Church of Living Dangerously, How One of America's Biggest Pastors Became a Drug Runner for a Mexican Cartel. As a pastor, you would probably read that article. You'd be like, one of my things not to do is become a drug runner. I want to see what happened. Uh, I didn't know this, this pastor. His name is John Bishop Lee. Uh, he pastored a church in, uh, in Vancouver, Washington, so not far from us, called Living Hope Church. And uh, he had a pretty amazing story. He came to, came to faith kind of in his late teens, really tough, rough childhood. Uh, had a real gift for connecting with people, communicating. Seemed to really love Jesus. I mean, he, he came to faith and immediately started teaching and telling people, started a Bible study. 
After a little while, that Bible study started to grow. And so they decided, you know, we should start a church. He and his wife, they got married. And so this church that began with a handful of people over not very long grew into a church of about 5,000 people there in Vancouver, Washington. They bought an old Kmart, put a church in there. He was known for their, uh, he had very dramatic presentations of, of Bible stories. So there on a Sunday morning, they would, uh, had a, one example was uh, they told the story of Noah. And they had live animals on stage. They had a real tiger that took a swipe at him. And I was like, man, we should get some animals. I mean, probably blow this thing up. So, so he was a man, though, that, I mean, people were being baptized, preaching the gospel faithfully. People were really coming to know Jesus. And yet, in December 11th, 2017, he was arrested for smuggling drugs from Mexico into the U.S. And you think, how did that happen? Well, of course, it happened in the way that it always does. It happened because he stopped coming to Jesus. He stopped hearing from Jesus. He stopped being obedient. The pressures of ministry and life began to overwhelm him. And instead of continuing on with where his faith began, he started turning to other things. He had an old football injury, started uh, popping uh, painkillers and got addicted to those. So he started drinking. At first, just a little bit until he he was drinking every night just to deal with the pressure of all that was happening. Then he ended up having an affair. Then he got fired from his job. And then he went down to his vacation home in Mexico and was bankrupt after not very long. And that's when someone came up and said, hey, do you want to earn some money? See, it seems like a very extreme story. But the, the main principles, the main elements of it are the same for any fall. He ended up in a place of hopelessness and despair, and he got there by not not doing the things that he said was true of him, not trusting God in the way that, that he said he did. The danger of this example is that all of us could probably feel really great about our faith in light of this story. We could say, I'm not running drugs, I haven't totally ruined my marriage, so I think I'm doing all right. But of course, that's not the point. That's not why Jesus is telling us about this man who built his house and it collapsed, not so that we could say, well, I think my house is still standing. The point is that where are we building without a foundation? Where in our lives have we started to build something without it being rooted in Christ himself? Where are we assembling a a nice house that's going to crumble as soon as some pressures come to bear on it? And if that were to happen... Who would we hurt and how far would we fall? See, the earthly implications of this teaching is that, well, there, there is a sense in which we can, we can fail in faith here in this life. It leads to a point where we fail in the ultimate test of faith when we're before the throne of God and he is examining our life and, and we're being accused in our sin and we, we have no strength. Because ultimately we are hopeless apart from Christ. See, there is a flood coming. That language is used intentionally. Jesus, right away, in using the word flood, everyone listening to him would have known that the only other major flood in the Bible was a flood of judgment. It was a flood that overtook all of sinful humanity who had no strength, they had no righteousness of their own. And Jesus is preparing these people to say, Look, there is, of course, there's, there's floods and and trials in this life, but that's not your greatest concern. Your greatest concern is the life to come. And so if you are not demonstrating faithfulness now, you have no hope at the time of ultimate judgment. 
See, this is why Jesus isn't just happy to have a lot of people following him around. Because that's not his goal. His goal is that he might prepare humanity for the day of judgment. For the day when the greatest pressures, the pressures of God's wrath against our sin, are exerted upon the structure of our faith. And if it's rooted in anything apart from Christ, it's going to fall. It's going to collapse. What Jesus wants us to see is that there are actual results from these two kinds of faith. That it's not just kind of an airy, fairy sense of of having a strong faith, you know, being passionate, being emotional. There are some real legitimate points of strength that come from a life of obedience. There are results, that there's a comfort, there's a hope, there's a joy in times of trial that Jesus wants for each of us. And he's saying the way to get there is is today in in the small acts of obedience in putting into practice that which you think is is true and you're convicted about. I came across another story equally kind of massive in its scale but this time it's one of faithfulness. This is a story about a a couple actually a pastoral couple Scott and uh, Janet Willis. Scott was a pastor in the eastern United States And they went through a day of uh, incredible uh, horror. This was back in 1997. Uh, They were on a road trip from Chicago to Wisconsin. Uh, Their minivan was filled with uh, six of their youngest kids. They had nine kids, uh, six youngest. They were going on a road trip. And uh, as they were driving along uh, Interstate 94, their van ran over uh, a large piece of metal. And it punctured the fuel tank underneath their van. And then the sparks, as it dragged, ignited the fuel tank. And the whole van just burst into flames. And, and the van, I mean, exploded, crashed off to the side. Uh, Scott and Janet kind of fell out of their doors and looked, and, and it was just the whole van was engulfed in flames. The kids were, were already all gone. So you would, you would think that that would be the day when, when they felt farthest from God. I mean, you would think that would, that would be the day when they would, I mean, they would just, curse God or slip into depression or despair, that there would be a darkness that would envelop them that they would never get out of. And yet, they had a press conference that day. They were bandaged, they were burned. And this is what they, they said to the media. Uh, Janet said, in that moment, as she looked back towards the van and, and was screaming for her kids, she said, Scott touched her shoulder. And he said, Janet, this is what we've been prepared for. It was quick, and there with the Lord. And Scott said, I know God has purposes and reasons. God has demonstrated his love to us and our family. There's no question in our mind that God is good, and we praise him in all things. See, they had an answer to the temptation, to the pressure to fall into despair. And the answers that they had were all rooted in Christ. See, they had a greater hope for their children than simply a life here on this earth. They had the hope of heaven, which only comes through Christ. They had a greater joy, an expectation of joy for them as parents than simply being able to see their children raised as amazing and wonderful and we would say essential as that is for any parents. They had a greater joy and the joy was that that all of them, their family, as they claimed the name of Christ, they would enjoy eternity together in heaven. And so when the worst happened, they, they had something to hang on to. They, they had an answer, and it, it could only be in Jesus. Because he is the only one who answers some of these essential 
points of despair in our lives. See, those words that they spoke, those are not the words of someone who was a stranger to Jesus. They were not the words of someone who had, who had not been with him recently. They were the words of those that had come to him daily, continually, and had lived out the things that he commanded, trusting him fully, so that at this point of overwhelming test of faith, they would not only prove faithful, but they would experience the peace and hope and joy that they had been, they had been claiming all of these years. See, let me ask you this. What has Jesus told you to do? And why aren't you doing it? I mean, if you really believe that Jesus is Lord, if you really believe in your heart that, that he, he has the greatest good, the greatest hope, the greatest joy for you, then, then when he calls you to something, why have you not done it? And why are the things that he has told you to stop doing and you're still doing them? In light of the magnitude of this teaching and the connection that we see between not just the trials of this life but the trials of the life to come, how is it that you can build your faith on obedience to Christ today so that you might be strengthened for tomorrow? See, that is the overwhelming burden of this text. This is why Jesus is not just ending with a lot of high fives and and slap happy stories and man, everything's great. What what he really wants is to prepare his people because he loves us and he wants the very best for us, which is a a rock solid faith that will help us to endure whatever whatever trials of this life, but most certainly the the time of testing at the end of our lives. I want to end just by reading his, his first line which he says to people who he loves dearly. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? What he's saying is, do you not really believe that I love you? That I have the best for you? See, my my hope is that for those of us who claim the name of Jesus, that this kind of exhortation would not be one of, of heaping more weight on us because we should remember the ultimate obedience has already been done. Jesus is the one who, when God the Father said, go to the cross, Jesus said, yes. He said, is there any other way but Lord, not my will but yours be done. It's in him that is the essential obedience of our faith. And so from that rock-solid obedience, we now have the joy of living it out in light of his strength and his power, the spirit of God within us. That is the road to a faith that stands. Because that is the road that is, that is linked inextricably linked with Christ himself. So my hope is that you are not weighed down, but you are lifted up. That you are, you are encouraged and exalted. It's not exalted, exhorted. Christ is exalted. <laughs> to the point that every step that you make is one of saying, I trust you, Jesus. I trust you. You've done everything. There's every reason. I have every reason to trust you. And we step and step again and again, even through the floods, even through the storms. So let's pray. Let's rejoice in who God is. God, we do thank you for who you are. Jesus, we do thank you for all that you've done for us. Jesus, you do not heap burdens upon us of having to earn salvation, earn a sense of of hope or joy. Jesus, you've done all that for us. 
And yet you love us too much to allow us to simply claim your name and then live, live a different way. God, I pray for each one. I pray that through the spirit of Jesus, for those of us who have faith, that we would feel that weight of conviction and we would change. We would feel that weight of call to obedience and we would step out in faith. Lord, may this be true of us so that you would receive much glory in our lives and, and Lord, for our sake, that we would be prepared for whatever trials around the corner that we cannot see and for that ultimate day when we stand before you and, and we can say with full assurance that Jesus is our rock. Jesus is our foundation. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.